I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you count the legal votes, I easily win. If you count the illegal votes, they can try to steal the election from us. I'm Ryan Grimm, and this is Deconstructed. At the time that we're sending this episode out to the podcast machines, the presidential election appears all but over, with enough votes outstanding in Atlanta and Philadelphia to give Biden both Georgia and Pennsylvania, which is more than he needs to win now that Michigan and Wisconsin have already been called for him. Trump isn't happy. There's tremendous corruption and fraud going on. There's been a lot of shenanigans, and we can't uh, stand for that in our country. Fittingly, this might be how the Trump presidency ends, at least the first one. But it opens a new era of uncertainty. As of now, Mitch McConnell is well-positioned to hold on to the Senate, though Democrats will still have a chance to snatch it in January thanks to runoffs in Georgia. Still, the pollsters and the polling aggregators expected they'd already be in control of the upper chamber and also predicted Democrats would pick up a bunch of seats in the House of Representatives. Instead, they're on track to lose seats. On Thursday, Nancy Pelosi huddled with her Democratic colleagues on a three-hour conference call that steadily leaked the press while it was still going on. Centrists attacked both the party leadership for the failure and also the leftist members of the caucus, saying that their calls to defund the police and ban fracking cost them big time. The squad pushed back, saying that they are only representing the demands of their communities and that a deeper look at what went wrong is needed. Coming into this election, I had the disorienting feeling of having no idea how it would turn out. Now, that's not to say that I'm always right or I always know how things will go. Quite the opposite. But I always have some idea of what I think is going to happen, and I have some reasons I can point to to explain why. Maybe that's the gift or the curse of being a guy in America. I don't know. But I do know that this time I really had no clue. The polls weren't leaving much room for doubt, though. Biden was up by about eight points on average nationally, and he was up by around the same in key battleground states. But something felt off. Sifting through the results of this campaign, there are no obvious narratives that smack you in the face. Last week, we talked to two progressive Democrats trying to flip suburban Republican seats in Texas. Both were given solid chances to win by the conventional wisdom, and both lost. In fact, nearly every Democratic challenger across the country lost, whether they ran as far to the right or as far to the left as they could. We'll talk to one of those later in the show, Mike Siegel, who tried to run a populist progressive campaign in Texas against an entrenched incumbent and did everything right. He got the number of votes he set out to win. In fact, he got more. But his opponent got even more than that, a lot more. He'll share with us why he thinks he lost and what fundamental changes the party needs to make to keep it from happening over and over. Yet while the members of the squad are getting trashed by their colleagues, There's an argument that they played a significant role in delivering the Rust Belt to Biden. Once the pandemic hit, 
Biden shut down his ground game, not that he was running much of one before that. Yet Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar in Detroit and Minneapolis bucked the party advice and kept on canvassing door-to-door, working to drag out the vote for Biden. They took public health precautions, but they didn't stop campaigning the way most Democrats did. Trump had hoped that the suburban voters in Michigan and Minneapolis would be so scared by Ilhan and Rashida that they would come running his way for safety. Instead, Democrats expanded their margins in the suburbs and turnout exploded in Detroit and Michigan. The same thing happened in Philadelphia, which has gradually been taken over by Democratic socialist insurgents the past four years. So while progressives lost House races around the country, and while Democratic leaders want to blame them for what happened, they also delivered big in the most crucial states. It's complicated. And joining us now to talk about this is Minneapolis Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. Congresswoman, how's your week going? It's going. <laughs> well, thank. I mean, thank, thanks so much for joining us on Deconstructed. I, I really appreciate it. No, oh, great to be here. So we want- Congratulations, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, fill, filling Medi's very big shoes. I was um, on it right after I won my state house race, like, which now seems like forever ago, but right after Trump and I both got elected into office. Um, so, yeah. So speaking of Trump, you know, he, he was really convinced that your presence in Minnesota, you know, the fact of your existence was going to drive people in Minnesota to flip the state red. And you know, one of the reasons we're going to win Minnesota, Ilhan Omar, Ilhan Omar. He said it basically at every single rally. Yeah. This woman is crazy. She's a horrible woman who hates our country. That's why I'm going to win Minnesota because of her. That didn't happen. Why do you think that is? How, what do you make of the Minnesota results? I mean, he effed around and found out, I guess. Um, you know, I, I've, I've always said this, you, you get what you organize for, and we've been massively organizing our state, our district for, for this turnout. I told my colleagues and counterparts here in, in our state um, and in, in our caucus that the reason so many Republicans were donating and investing in me having a primary challenger was to put a damper on our organizing ability mm-hmm. and that they had this long-term strategy to either wear us out, to rid us of the resources and and to give themselves the chance to win without the machine here in the fifth being fully mobilized. Right. Uh, and so as we started our, our primary election, I wanted to make sure every single resource we were using wasn't just for like our primary win, um, but that it would last throughout the general election. Yeah, and, and Biden, you know, not long after the, the pandemic really struck, said, you know, he was canceling all in-person canvassing. You, you went a different direction. You know, why was that? And when did you, re- you know, fully get back into hitting the streets? Yeah, I mean, our, our canvassing team was out early, very early. Um, and, you know, I, I think to our, our party um, and the, the presidential campaign, I think they believed work could get done without it. Um, and, you know, as an organizer, I know that districts like ours don't magically 
um, turn out without people, right. you know, being at the doors and, and investing and in, in building that that trust um, and engaging with them um, to do so. And so I I kind of said, you know, you all don't have to be involved. I can I can <laughs> do it all alone. <laughs> Um, you just have to trust that, you know, we can, we can get it done here. Um, and I'm really just proud of the fact that they allowed us to, to do that and didn't interfere with, with our work and our ability to organize our district in ways in which we knew how to. And what, what I kind of found interesting is that, you know, you, you had a general election opponent, you had somebody that was spending a lot of money against you, but it wasn't anybody. $10 million. Who, right. And so they could smear you on television, but there wasn't somebody who, you know, they could have $100 million and, and, and a Republican's not going to win that seat. So you, you didn't really have to do anything, uh, but you did it anyway. What I mean, what kind of operation um, did you run? Was it a kind of perfunctory uh, like let's let's check these boxes or were, were you were you running as as if you were kind of at the top of the ticket? Yeah, I mean, we, we built a, a program in, in the primary that was uniquely designed to address the challenges of, of COVID um, that uh, really incorporated some of the things that we've done in, you know, 2018 um, that had to just sort of adapt to the, to the new normal. And so we developed a COVID um, safe canvassing program um, you know, with, with nearly 100 people involved in, in that program. And then we did a, a buildings captain to sort of absorb our building program that we normally would do where we would go into buildings and door knock and that kind of stuff. That because of COVID, buildings have restrictions. So we designed it so that, you know, we would reach and find people who lived in all of the high concentration buildings where they would be responsible for their own buildings that's similar to the block captain um, programs that we have, which we also mobilized. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, after the primary, we shifted in making Biden top of the ticket because, you know, I think there was, there was a lot of exhaustion <laughs> with, with people and having mm -hmm. a conversation about coming out to vote for me again. It was, it was always like, <laughs> we got to do this again. Um, and because, you know, a lot of the ballots for people um, were ordered for the primary, um, it was it was easy for us to just transition our scripts and our conversations just to talk to people about why the presidential election was important and why um, why Minnesota was was being picked on um, and how the best way we can respond was through the ballot box. And how do those numbers look now that you've had uh, your couple days removed from uh, election day? What, what are you finding um, when it comes to turnout compared to previous years and, and compared to your own expectations? Yeah, I mean, we here in Minnesota um, have, uh, I think, the, the highest national turnout so far. We're still counting in the country in the last 10 years. I think. <laughs> and, you know, our district is is making history again. We, we, we have, you know, I think since 2006 have broken turnout records here. Um, and we're, we're breaking another turnout record. It's over 400,000 people who came out and cast their ballot, which is 88 plus percent uh, participation in, in our democracy. <laughs> 
So and Biden ended up doing better than you at the top of the ticket by by double digits. And, and people are online are starting to make some of that. How do you explain the, the discrepancy? I mean, there's there's always discrepancies. You know, those discrepancies existed in uh, in 2000. 16 um for for keith and hillary mm-hmm. you know th- those kind of um discrepancies always exist they exist for all of the other congressional um candidates uh you know whether it is betty mccollum or um dean phillips or you know any of the other people um biden performed better in their in their districts and i think that speaks really to the focus um, being in getting rid of of the villain, I, I saw somewhere that a, a huge there was a party on the ballot called "Legalize Marijuana Now!" exclamation point, and that in a, a lot of working class districts they got double digit support. And I'm trying to think if I went into the ballot box and I knew 100 percent, look, Ilhan Omar is going to win, and then you you look down and you see "Legalize Marijuana Now." I can kind of see like, well, what the heck? Why not just, you know, send a, send a signal there? Were you surprised to see, you know, double digit support for what, what is kind of a, a, a kind of gimmicky uh, thir- third party there? No, no. Um, again, you know, the, the last time that they were on, on the ticket with, with Keith, we've seen similar numbers. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I remember somewhat talking to me about kind of what you were just saying. I don't think they mm-hmm. thought that that, that was actually like going to happen. But I think oftentimes that is like something that happens. And it's for us, it was less than 10% that voted. Mm-hmm. It is it is fascinating because you, all, all I was thinking about was, oh, I wonder if they know we support legalizing their <laughs> Right. <laughs> it's just kind of more fun to vote for that. Than I, I figured. Person, I but... mean, I'm, I'm sure I probably might have done that myself. <laughs> So uh, Democrats were expected to pick up at least 10 seats around the country. Instead, it looks like you guys are going to lose seats. Uh, some key Senate races that Democrats thought they were going to win, they're, they're going to lose. You know, what do you, what, what's your read on what went wrong? Yeah, I mean, there, there is, um, you know, an, an autopsy that clearly has, has to get done. You know, you'll you'll hear from people who will say, "Oh, it was it was the talk of socialism, and it was this, and it was that." But you know, many of of the places that we we lost seats in, or you know, Biden didn't do so well in, were were places where Obama won, and they threw so much at him. I mean, he was a secret Muslim who was a who was a socialist who was going mm-hmm. to destroy this country, um, but he won places like Florida did really well and that was because he believed as an organizer in investing in a ground game having conversations not shying away from you know that like relational the power of relational building and we've seen that with candidates like Carrie uh, Katie Porter um who were in that swing district. Katie's race was the last to be called in in 2018, mm-hmm. um, and she's done really well this time um, because she understands her district. She puts in work. Uh, she has real conversations with real people about what's really important to them. Um, and so I, I don't know. I, I think people will make excuses about why we lost, uh, but I but I think it always comes down to building trust building relationships 
and having conversations about what really matters to people and not buying into the narratives about what people care about, but actually asking them. Seems like the the Biden campaign seemed like they were they they did a few uh, events with your uh, neighboring Congresswoman Betty McCollum, visited St. Paul, uh, but stayed pretty far away from Minneapolis. Did did people notice that? And do you, do you think it do you think it mattered? And wh- what do you think the the campaign thinking was there? They didn't. Um, Hillary spent significant amount of time in in our district, and you know I I, I don't believe it made a, a difference you know we were mm-hmm. pretty clear um with the campaign that we believed if we ran our our program with with their you know sort of blessing and belief in mm-hmm. us that uh, our district was going to outperform um every other district uh, and you know they've they've been clear partners in um you know, supplementing us with sure. resources when, when we needed it. And, you know, I think that sort of trust uh, in our ability to, to organize um, allowed for us to be creative and do our own thing. If we do have divided government next year and, and Mitch McConnell is, is running the Senate, how do you think that uh, Democrats or the, and the Biden administration ought to confront that situation? Um. Yeah, I mean, it's going to depend on, you know, what what the House looks like and, you know, how much we, we contribute to, to that division. I think to, to me, it matters that we don't allow um, the, the Senate, if it remains in the, in the hands of the Republicans, to dictate what our agenda should be. Um, in the ways that they haven't allowed us to to dictate what their agenda should be, um, I think you know the when when the results are um, fully done uh, and um, and come out, we will see that you know majority of of the country has voted um, to allow for for the Democrats to lead in the White House. And we should take advantage of that trust and that belief in our ability to govern better than the Republicans have been. Well, Congresswoman Omar, congratulations on your primary win and your reelection. And thank you for joining me on Deconstructed. Thank you, it's great to chat with you. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. (laughs) 
That was Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, just reelected to her second term in Congress. Next, we're going to talk to civil rights attorney Mike Siegel, who's fresh off his second run for Congress in suburban Austin. Siegel bucked conventional wisdom and ran on an unapologetic populist progressive message. And by the end, he had convinced Cook Political Report that his long shot bid had made a toss up of the race. But he fell short. And we're going to talk to him now about why. Mike, welcome to Deconstructed. Well, thank you, Ryan. Great to talk to you today. So um, tell us tell us a little bit about this race as compared to last race. So you, you first ran in in 2018. And you kind of stunned Washington by by making it as close an election as you did. What was the difference between 2018 and and, and or obviously the, the number of differences is hard, hard to limit. But what were the key differences to you between 2018 and 2020? Sure. Well, I mean, big picture, the context is different and the campaigns are different. Right. And so in terms of the context in 2018, you know, we're part of this wave of election fighting Trump on health care. Uh, you know, running with Beto O'Rourke at the top of the ticket, this kind of transformational mm-hmm. campaign across Texas, organizing in every county. And uh, for me, it was like playing with house money. Nobody thought I had a chance in, in hell of keeping coming close. Um, and so there wasn't a lot of attention on what we were doing. And we just did a ton of grassroots organizing across the counties. And that's what helped us get as close as we did. In 2020, I came back, uh, you know, with a much different context. We had changed the perception of this district from being a safe Republican seat to a a battleground race. I had to endure a really tough primary, you know, Um, Mm three and a half million dollars was spent against me in the primary from from moderate Democrats who wanted to take the nomination. And that, you know, um, that was ultimately one of the things that hurt me, right? Because I wasn't able to emerge from a delayed runoff until July 14th mm-hmm. and really only had three months to pivot and, and run a really uh, strong congressional campaign. But I was able to raise over three and a half million dollars for my campaign, uh, compare mm-hmm. that to about 400,000 and change in 2018. We did win national support, everyone from Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, I was even a DCCC red to blue candidate, got support from Speaker Pelosi, but also from all these progressive forces. We made millions of voter contacts. We had, I would suggest, the strongest field program of any congressional race in Texas. Mm-hmm. And it was because of our organizing, because of this deep coalition work we had done, you know, the Muslim community doing interrelational uh, outreach, the labor community, the environmental community, Sunrise, all these groups coming in. So we really built a powerful coalition and did everything, I think, everything you can be expected to do in the electoral context, we did. Right. You know, right. millions right. on TV, organizing, all that kind of stuff. I mean, just ultimately, there were just a lot more Republicans who voted. And, uh, you know, that that's something that you maybe can't address in, in a short-term electoral context. Right. So, and to drill down one layer b- below that, you know, in, in campaigning, every campaign has what they call a win number. Um, they, you know, they, they look at previous elections they, and they kind of project what turnout's going to be in, in their upcoming election. And they say, we need to win X number of votes in order to beat our opponent. You know, did you guys hit that number of votes? Yes, uh, over 186,000. You know, the highest model we were working with uh, from the DCCC in my own campaign, you know, we got the win number for the highest turnout model. And, and we still lost by over 20,000 votes. It's like, all the Republicans came out. They really, they wanted to protect their guy. Yeah, it's it, that's something that I think Democrats need to think about as they're analyzing this election. Because what, what you're saying here is that it wasn't really 
an inability of Democrats to turn out their supporters. You know, you you tried to turn out what well, you I guess you're aiming for about 180, 185,000 votes. Yeah. It's like over that. And you look at that and you think, OK, um, I'm going to win this. But then he comes out with you know, well over 200,000 voters. So to your mind, you know, where did where did he find all of these Republicans who hadn't come out in the past? I mean, first of all, you have to acknowledge that gerrymandering works, right? This district mm-hmm. was drawn to be permanent Republican and, uh, you know, includes the, a small enough portion of Austin, the conservative enough portion of Harris County, and then these seven rural counties that it's built to be Republican. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, in Harris County in particular, we were so excited about turnout. Uh, but it turns out that a lot of the people there that, that voted for the first time were Republicans. And I don't mm-hmm. know if they're motivated by Trump in particular, the opposition to the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, the anti-communist messaging. I mean, I don't know exactly what it was that motivated each one of those people. But in our minds, a first-time voter or a very rare voter, we couldn't imagine them turning out this time just to protect Trump. But it turns out they did. So, you know, one one of the reasons people were so interested in your race and Julie Oliver's and Kara Eastman's and some others were to make the argument or to answer the question of, you know, do you have to run as a as a kind of centrist or or moderate in some of these districts or can a progressive message, you know, win in a swing district in in Texas? And the answer, at least this cycle, seems to be that it didn't matter. And I wonder what you can draw from that. You know, I, I remember some previous cycles where it also didn't matter. 2010, for instance, the Blue Dogs, New Dems and progressives, you know, they, they, they all kind of lost the same amount of support. There was this kind of just national wave that was pushing against Democrats. And it didn't matter if it was a corrupt ancient blue dog Democrat or it was a, a, a progressive Democrat who stood with organized labor and stood with environmentalists and, and was able to bring out a space. There was something about the national electorate or the kind of the, the national mood that just swamped it. What do you think uh, a House candidate can do? Like how much agency, how much can a House candidate change the game? That's right. I mean, I think it's marginal, especially in a presidential cycle. You know, how much we can change how people perceive the election. Mm-hmm. Um, I outperformed, you know, uh, Shri Kulkarni in Texas 22 got support from the new Dems. I think he mm-hmm. had four or five, six times as much money being spent, including the outside groups. And we outperformed him. Mm-hmm. I mean, his being more conservative than me didn't benefit him. I mean, because we right. were able to motivate lots of forces that he wasn't able to motivate. And so to me, what I would have liked to have tested is if we had an entire progressive ticket. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be that the most consequential decisions about my campaign were made March 3rd, Super Tuesday, mm-hmm. when we decided that Bernie Sanders wasn't going to be the presidential nominee. And in Texas, we decided that Christina Zunzun Ramirez wasn't going to be our Senate nominee. So with my analysis that I'm doing now with our team and and with many others in Texas is what would it take to really get out more poor voters? I mean, I'm talking about poor people. Like Mm -hmm. when you, when you canvass in rural Texas in a town like Eagle Lake or Brenham in the summer, you meet people who are in these rundown, you know, double wide, kind of houses, you know, basically falling apart at the seams, people who have to survive three months of 100 degree weather with no air conditioning at all, people who, who have very marginal employment, 
what's it going to take to get those folks to care about an election? You know, whether you're talking about uh, black folks and Latinx voters in in the city or poor rural voters, black, Latino and white, what's it going to take for them to really care? about an election. Mm -hmm. And to me, Bernie Sanders would have helped us make that populist case. You know, Texas has this tradition of populism. Mm -hmm. It goes back 100 years or more. But like if we were really talking about farm policy, uh, if we were really talking about water policy, if we were talking about rural jobs programs, things that really affect their lives. I mean, as as a congressional candidate, I was talking about these things, but it's hard to really break through. Same thing with Christina, you know, statewide in Texas, mm-hmm. but we're not going to flip Texas if we don't win the RGV, the Rio Grande Valley. And, you know, if you haven't been to Texas, you might not realize there are communities along the border called colonias where they don't even have running water and, and mm-hmm. municipal sewage in, in some of these developments. I mean, these are like, you know, sometimes undocumented residents, sometimes U.S. citizens who are living in abject poverty. What's it going to take to get those folks to care? And it's not some slick TV ads. It's not a poll tested message. Even for me, you know, I, you know, I got some DCCC support and some of my messaging was about prescription drug prices and protecting pre-existing conditions. But I feel like mm-hmm. that's too nuanced for these folks. I mean, it has to be more direct. Um, you know, this, this might be a little off, off topic, but one of the things I'm thinking about is think about the movements in Venezuela under Hugo Chavez or Bolivia under Evo Morales. Mm-hmm. Evo Morales is supported by the poorest indigenous farmers from the high plains of Bolivia. Those people are engaged in the electoral process. In this country, poor people are not engaged in the electoral process. And so for me, on a a gerrymandered map, I don't know if I could have gotten more than 210,000 votes like McCall got, unless we were really doing organizing with poor people. And I think that's that's a longer term investment. That's where it's this question, these people who gave me $2,800 when I called them and spoke to them for a minute, would they give me $1,000 if I was going to say, we're going to invest in a five-year project to do deep organizing these communities? Like, are, is the right. donor class willing to invest in, in changing the fundamental conditions in, in areas like mine that would really enable progressive change in the long term? Yeah, for listeners who don't know, Christina, who we, who we also covered at The Intercept, uh, came from an organizing background. She had... Um, you know, worked at it, you know, should have founded an organization that had registered, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of, of Texans trying to, trying to shift the, trying to shift the battlefield. And she ran, she ran for Senate, um, and, you know, was, was wiped out by the, the DSCC's choice. So, and then what you saw is that the, the, uh, the Hispanic vote, uh, shifted toward Trump, which shocked a lot of people in, in Washington, but did that did that surprise you uh, when you saw that? And how do you think that? And did it hurt you in your race? And how do you think that would have been different if you had uh, Christina and Bernie at the top of the ticket? You know, I think the Republicans got out every single person they might get out. And so, you know, mm. we, when we talk about Hispanic voters in Texas, you're talking about a fair number of white conservative racist voters. Like that's you know, if you're in mm-hmm. California and LA. You don't think of Latino voters as being white and racist, you know, but let, let's just think, let's just call it out. So I'm not saying that we're going to flip those people, although I'm sure there's some in the right. middle that we could flip if we really worked. But I'm saying the non-voters, that's who we need to get out. And that's yeah, yeah. who we need, the transformational agenda and also the transformational tactics. Even Beto O'Rourke, when he ran for Senate, didn't do well in the RGV in the Rio Grande Valley. And so that's where the investment's needed. 
also in black communities, uh, Asian communities, you know, white rural communities. We need diverse strategies that really reach, reach out to folks. And they can't, they can't think of Democrats as being establishment. And, and, and I mean, if they do think of us that way, that's not motivation to get out and vote. You know, and, and so Joe Biden didn't campaign down here. MJ Hager raised a ton of money, didn't have a field program. And so it really was, I was the most powerful field program in the nine counties where I was running. And given that I was only the nominee for three and a half months, you know, I don't have the, I didn't have the capacity to do that deep work to change the fundamental conditions of who's voting. Right. So let me see if I get what you're saying here. You're, like, you're a congressional candidate and, and to some some people on the outside that might sound like that's a that's a pretty influential position. You know, you're going to go to Washington as a member of Congress, but to people uh, that you're meeting on the street, particularly in these in these poor neighborhoods, they might agree with everything you're saying, uh, but just not believe that you alone are going to get this done. But that if you have somebody who's bringing a real populist message with credibility at the top, that you think that you might have been able to her- be heard. Yes. And, you know, one of the things I've been preaching on the campaign trail, and you know, I got to do some events with Bernie and he absolutely loved it. You know, this is our New Deal moment, uh, American history, you know, crumbling U.S. infrastructure, massive, uh, you know, wealth inequality, unemployment. Uh, we need ma- major crises we need to confront. In the, in the 30s, it was fascism rising in Western Europe. Now it's climate change. And, and how did we enact a new deal in this country? You know, a 15-year program, Works Progress Administration, massively investing, investing in infrastructure, putting people to work and all sorts of jobs. It was FDR, when he ran for president the first time, talking about the new deal every chance he'd get. We're going to give you a new deal. Whatever the question was, economic policy, jobs, you know, healthcare, you name it. We're going to give you a new deal. Imagine we had a candidate for president who for... 10, 12 months is talking nonstop about fundamental economic change. That's what it takes. I mean, and, and that's where the Democratic establishment, which to some extent supported me, although not as strongly as they could have, they're not talking about that because we're too invested in, in conservative donors who don't want us to say that. And so we're caught in between. You know, half the Democratic Party is still taking the corporate PAC money, uh, moderating the message, saying, OK, we're only going to talk about this extremely narrow issue, you know, protecting pre-existing conditions or negotiating prescription drug prices downwards. Whereas, like, people, they don't have AC and it's 100 degrees every day. You know, they don't have gas in the car. You know, they're making $10 an hour and getting 20 hours a week. I mean, they are struggling to survive. They are completely cynical about democracy as something that's even real in the world. And we're not speaking clearly to them about why it matters to vote. Yeah. And can you walk through the, the logic that people, that consultants use to, to get you to the place that, you know, uh, lower prescription drug prices and protecting people with pre-existing conditions is, is, the, is the message that you should kind of organize your, your, your health care argument around? Sure. So consultants and, and, you know, the DCCC, they're, they're built around what can we propose to you that we can actually execute, right? And so it's these people that know how to uh, produce TV ads in a quick time frame and get them placed on TV. And, and they can basically quote you, if you give me this many million dollars, we will run this many ads and we can expect this percent shift in the polling. So it re- relates to the polling. And so... Um, 
you know, the DCCC comes on board and they say, we made 2,000 calls into your district. These are the issues that matter. This, this is the universe of people you should contact. And it's, it's relatively conservative. I mean, we, we contacted a big, bigger uh, number of people, but they're like, okay, you need to win this many more voters than last time. Here's 60,000 people you should contact with all your resources. And, and, and you do your poll, but most likely it's going to be a healthcare message. And these are the talking points for healthcare. And every time you push back, well, should we pull different issues? Should we run ads on different things? They're like, well, you really need to hammer your message home. So it's not enough. Like if you're going to run two TV ads, you know, really you need to put a thousand points behind each one, which in Houston translates to a million dollars behind mm -hmm. each one. And so it just, they, they, they completely narrow what they think you can accomplish. Right. And whenever you push back, it's like really, it's really swimming upstream. You know, I'm like, okay, I want to talk more about jobs because we've got all, all these unemployed people. Well, that doesn't pull quite as well as healthcare. Right. I want to push back against Michael McCall's racism, uh, you know, him buying an ad with this constable who's completely racist, anti-Muslim. Well, you know, the, the, the racist message, you know, there's all these moderates who are concerned about riots. You know, it's like at every point they push back against you. And so, you know, of course, as a candidate, I do have final say. Although if I go against them, maybe, maybe they'll pull some of my funding. But it's hard to build consensus. There's not like an alternate framework or ecosystem of pollsters and consultants who are like, no, this is how you can win with a populist mm -hmm. message. Like there's not people, there's not people I can hire. I asked, you know, who like, who know how to run a real left campaign. And I think part of the fundamental problem is that the whole framework is how can you raise and spend X million dollars in two or three months in a way that moves voters? Because that's not how political change happens. All you're doing is playing with the margins. Right. You're, not, you're not affecting the foundation. And so that's where I am. I've basically been on the campaign trail nonstop for, mm -hmm. for three years. I've, I've exceeded what anyone expected was possible in this particular district against one of the wealthiest members of Congress. I won 186,000 votes at Labor Support, Sunrise, Deep Triple C, Sherry Bustos, Bernie Sanders, Nancy Pelosi, Elizabeth Warren, all these people backed me, you know? And uh, we came up short. And, you know, other than redrawing the map itself, right. my only answer is that we need to do deep organizing. And, and my question is, who's willing to invest in that work? I also wanted to ask you about the politics of COVID um, in your district. And this is this is kind of a verboten uh, topic among a, a lot of the media because people feel like if you even approach this conversation in the wrong way, you're going to be accused of being pro-death and, and in favor of of people dying. Like if, if you question the, the Democratic approach to, to coronavirus, um, it, you know, it, the re the reaction is is kind of uh, you know swift and 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 furious, but there's also you know a significant amount of um, anger among the uh, the population out there around how the lockdowns were rolled out and and around uh, some of some of some of the other kind of uh, what they would what they would call democratic overreaction uh, to coronavirus. Now again, this is a this is a deadly pathogen. People you know more than two hundred thousand people. Have have died from it, but there is a there's there's a, a an inequality around it. You know, people who have college degrees and have professional jobs have been able to weather the lockdowns, 
in in a much safer, both economically and public health way, uh, than than working class people and poor people uh, who who can't uh, who don't have those same uh, luxuries. And so I, I'm I'm wondering what you know. You talk to so many people, and your campaign interacted with with so many people. I'm wondering if you have a, a more textured sense of how the politics of of COVID and and coronavirus. Uh, played out in 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 your race or or nationally, and whether that might account for some of the underperformance uh, that that Democrats saw on election day. I mean, I certainly am shocked that that so many Republicans were enthusiastic to return Trump after he's basically facilitated the death of so many people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the the primary way I experienced it was tactical on, on the campaign side. Mm-hmm. Austin was very serious about how we treated COVID. You know, we had strong leadership from our mayor and county leaders. We shut down, uh, you know, in a big way. Uh, even when the governor was trying to reopen the state, we 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 laid, we lagged behind. You know, we've opened schools later, and you know, I, I got seventy percent of the vote in Austin. It's hard to complain about that. You know, in, in suburban Harris County, where you know over forty percent of the vote came, I got like thirty-five percent of the vote, and. And I don't really have a sense of of how COVID in particular influenced voting, or rather, or whether it was just this broad Republican suburban surge uh, of people that wanted to protect Trump, uh, stand up against Black Lives Matter, uh, stand up against what they perceive to be socialism. I mean, I, I don't really have you know an analysis of, on that. But on the tactical side, it, it did feel like we were fighting with one hand tied behind our back. The idea that the Republicans never stopped canvassing in person, and we did. I mean, my campaign, mm-hmm. before a lot of campaigns, we actually started in-person canvassing again. Uh, we knocked, you know, 60,000, 80,000 doors towards the end. You know, uh, I had some money coming late. We just hired canvassers to hit more doors. Even then, like, compared to other campaigns, I did a lot more in-person canvassing than others. Mm-hmm. But I continue to be amazed how we have basically two countries, right? You know, one country that's like following, you know, Dr. Fauci and saying, okay, can we, can we all buckle down, you know, stop the spread, get out of this. And the other side, that's like, let's open up and, you know, a few people die. So be it. I, I still haven't wrapped my head around how we're just living in two different worlds on that issue. And lastly, among, among people running to flip Republican districts, I think you were one of the, the few um, that really prioritized climate change. And I'm curious what what your sense is of how that that would resonate uh, with those poorer voters um, that that you talked about if it was also at the top of the ticket. I understand the limitations that you're you know, you're dealing with just as a congressional candidate, but for people who, like you said, it's it's 100 plus degrees out, um, they don't have air conditioning, they don't even have you know sewage hooked up, they don't have running water in some like some, in some of these towns. Um, how how do you make how do you make climate change resonate? Would you lead with the economic argument that you're going to transform the economy by addressing climate change? Or is, is, is that something that uh, the working poor and, and, and the poor are going to have a hard time connecting with until some of their material needs are met? I think it's definitely the latter, Ryan. I mean, I think it's, you know, we're gonna, essentially we're going to give you a, a green new deal. We're going to give you a new deal. And that means we're going to bring in this money to hire you to do X, Y, Z, you know, to help people really envision that. And one of the things I'd like to work on, you know, the original new deal had a project in every single congressional district in the country. And so I, to me, that's the way to sell this idea is to show in each area, 
okay, in, in Fayette County, we've got this coal plant, these piles of coal ash, all this wastewater that's been piling up. We're going to hire you to clean that up. And we're going to hire you to build something where the coal plant is that, that, that will keep people working. Uh, you know, it could be your groundwater. We're, we're, we need clean groundwater. We're going to figure out a way to get the toxins out of the water and get you fresh water. I mean, it has to be very concrete like that um, to, to, to build the motivation because as it is right now, my sense of it is that these folks, you know, the people that shop at Walmart or, or work at Walmart, or, or work at Dairy Queen, or whatever the local low-wage job is, they don't see much help coming from either side, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and even Joe Biden, you know, messaging that, you know, may, maybe he's going to hire these people from his administration who are conservative economically, who favor austerity programs. He's not saying he's going to invest in poor people. In poor people. Mm-hmm. So I, the Democratic Party is, is set up to be the party that fights for poor people, but all our messaging is about, you know, work, winning over moderate middle-class voters. And so it's this, we're, we're kind of caught in this trap. I mean, we're able to win the White House, but we're not transforming politics in this country. Seems like something they need to figure out. That's, that's the idea. And to me, you know, uh, to, to the extent we can build a working class populist movement in the South, uh, you know, fighting climate change, fighting for, for racial justice and economic justice, that's what I'd like to be a part of. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ryan. Have a good one. Take care. That was Mike Siegel, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, DC Bureau Chief of The Intercept and the author of the new book, We've Got People. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. If you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. And if you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.